You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Good morning, Centro Ipswich. I think that you guys are pound for pound the best looking church in the suburb. I, I, I slightly qualified that, you know, just a little bit. No, no, you are. You are all very good looking. And it's good to be with you this morning. We've, as a staff, we've just been away to the state conference this week. And uh, it was just a, a pretty incredible time. Pastor, Pastor Erwin McManus is just an incredible communicator and just brought a really incredible perspective to, to things. But I always seem to have a conference moment, something unexpected that happens, something almost inexplicable. And I had another one this time, like a few years ago, Pastor Adam and I were eating dinner on the, the, the Esplanade at, at uh, Mooloola Bar, and one of my favourite bands from New Orleans set up and started busking right in front of where we were. I mean, that was, it blew my mind. Something even more incredible, last year, Catherine Spark was talking to one of her friends, and, and the to that guy over there talking to Tim and Catherine said which one and she said the one that looks like a camera the one that looks like a Calvin Klein model I, I actually saw I actually saw the woman again this week she was bumping into furniture yeah Yeah, I had, to, I had to bring it back to self-effacing, you know. <laughs> anyway, this time, this one, this year, this was a little bit more sobering. Give you some background. Now, my sister's here this morning. Don't tell mum and dad I said this, okay? When I was 10 years old, my mum and dad must have thought that I needed a bit more church in me. I, I went to Sunday school sporadically, hated it, hated church, didn't want to know about it. And so their answer to this was to take me and send me on a Sunday school picnic of a Sunday school that I didn't go to in a church they didn't attend. And it was just put me on the bus and say, have a good day. And so that's what happened. I got sent on a Sunday school picnic, sitting on a bus, not knowing a single solitary person, thinking, gee, I wonder how this is going to pan out, you know. Anyway, anyway, this, this kid who I'd never seen before turns up and he sits down beside me. And, and he, he sort of, we sort of befriend each other. And I don't know if he was lonely too or something. But, but anyway, we befriend each other. And we go to this place where there's a lot of swimming pools and a lot of food and, and sort of end up having a, a re, it wasn't an outstanding day, but it was a reasonably good day given the circumstances. And, uh, and, and, and that one got off the bus, never saw him again. I, I knew his name and I heard it occasionally from time to time around the town. I was 10 years old, Ipswich wasn't big in those days. And anyway, anyway, come Wednesday night at the conference, Nerida and I grab our dinner and we're going outside and we sit at this little table, one like that table over there. And there's four chairs at it and there's only two of us. So we're sitting there and this couple comes up to us and they say, oh, do you mind if we sit here? Is this seat taken? We said, no, you can, you can sit here. And, um, and, and it's like a pastor and his wife and they get talking to us and um, 
and, and sort of he says, oh, you know, I'm, I was originally from Ipswich. And Nerida starts talking to him and recognizes what school he went to. It was the kid on the bus. <laughs> Dead set. I kid you not. It was the kid on the bus. And I couldn't believe it. You know, I, saw, I thought, how did that happen? You know? And anyway, I mean, you know, that is, that's the way God works. God works in this space that is beyond coincidence, doesn't he? And Erwin McManus said this about the church. He says, the church is the, the genius expression of God. And, and that's how church works. We are connected by something that is infinitely strong, that is infinitely eternal, so much so that someone you don't see for 48 years who helps you out on a terrible day rocks up and materializes right in front of you. And he remembered it too. Yeah. So yeah, we're connected by, by something that is incredible. If we are to be the genius expression of God, we've got to understand our role. We've got to understand the role of the church that we're in, the church worldwide, and us as individuals, the pieces that make up the church, yeah? The eternal purpose of the church, God's original idea, was to provide a family for himself and a bride for his son. He ordained that we would give his son, as a church, an eternal companion, that we would be equally yoked with him in love and that we would reign forever with him in the earth, yeah? So to understand our individual identity, we first need an understanding of the church in her bridal identity. Everything flows from that. We sang a song this morning that says, I am who you say I am. Do you know who he says you are? In the Song of Solomon, it says that we are the theme of his song. How about that? That, is, that speaks of intimacy. But see, the eternal companion of God to the Son of God, to walk in full partnership with him, to walk in daily intimate connection with him and bring heaven to earth and to steward God's purposes on the earth, that's a big responsibility, isn't it? We've, we've got to be on our game. The idea of church as a bride started in the Old Testament. There's snippets of it. But in the New Testament, it's actually spelled out and spoken. In the Old Testament, there's some poetic, prophetic scriptures that create beautiful pictures. And we're going to explore a few of them a bit later on today. But in the book of Ephesians, God just unmasks the allegory. He says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, marriage is the beautiful design of the Almighty a great and sacred mystery meant to be a vivid example of Christ and his church. And then a couple of verses before that, we're actually backtracking, he says, all that he does in us is designed to make us a mature church for his pleasure until we become a source of praise to him, glorious and radiant, beautiful and holy, without fault or flaw. Does that sound like us? Let's just say it's close. But there's a responsibility for us to grow as a church, and for us to do that, we must grow as individuals. If I can put it like this, he's saying in that verse, I know this sounds like I'm talking to husbands and wives about how you should live, 
But that's not what I'm talking about at all. The real mystery is that you are only a picture of the ultimate marriage, which is Jesus and the church. A few weeks ago, we looked at a passage from Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31. And it's always been known as the incredible wife, the above rubies woman. But we took that and we applied those verses to the church because it's actually a picture of the church rather than this wife who is unattainable, some sort of superwoman who never fails and never makes a mistake. But the church fulfills the picture really well. And when you read some of the verses that are in that chapter, chapter 31, in the Passion Translation, it brings it out so much better. Proverbs 31, verse 14, it says, She gives out revelation truth to feed others. She's like a trading ship bringing divine supplies from the merchant. Verse 16, she sets her heart upon a nation and takes it as her own. She labors there to plant the living vines. That's church, isn't it? Verse 19, she stretches out her hands to help the needy and she lays hold of the wheels of government. And then finally, there's this brilliant verse, verse 31 Proverbs 31, 31, so you can remember it. And it, it sums it all up. It says, so go ahead and give her the credit that is due. For she has become a radiant woman and all her loving works of righteousness deserve to be admired at the gateways of every city. Isn't that incredible? You should be a little bit more excited because that's actually talking about us. Us. Our works will be admired in the gateways of every city. That's an exhortation to us from the wisest man in, in the Old Testament at the peak of his wisdom, and he's prophetically painted a picture about the need to recognize the significance of the church. That's where it is. I don't know about you, but that just makes me feel good. You feel good? We may see the failings of the church. We may see what we're not doing, where we fall over, but God sees us differently. He sees us in a, he has his own edit. The way heaven sees us is different to the way we see us. Instead of being an organization or an institution or a corporation or even a movement, the church becomes something that is infinitely more powerful. She becomes a bridal, a full and intimate partner with the Lord Jesus. But there's one problem. There's one allegory in the Old Testament that just doesn't add up. And I want to deal with that this morning. There's one problem, one picture that's created in the book of Genesis that has created a mode of thinking which is deficient about the role of women. I actually sung along with David Bowie's Suffragette City before I even knew what a suffragette was. But I'm going to strike a blow for women's rights this morning. Some of you are going, oh no, oh, what's this? <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. In Genesis 2, there's this word. Genesis 2, 18, there's this word. God had created the worlds and he, he looked and he said, it's not good that man should be alone. The old King James say, says, I am going to make a helpmeet for him. A helpmeet. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm smart enough to buy the books of those who are. 
I go to Tim Sparks Library and they, they look it up. So what happens is God puts Adam into a deep sleep, pulls out a rib, makes a woman. Adam wakes up, calls a woman, Adam and Eve, so it goes. From that word, help me, there has come a train of thought that has actually devalued and degraded the place of women. Now, I believe in divine order in the household. Let's, let's, just, let's just get that right. But this translation, although not entirely incorrect, is a long way from being accurate. And it's attracted a certain amount of male chauvinistic pig attention. Yeah. There's this actual picture, a helpmate. A helpmate, what does that mean? I get this picture of, of the man with his feet up on the couch and a woman scurrying to bring him a mint julep to sip on while he's watching the footy. That's, that's the picture it creates. It's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make a helpmeet for him. God is speaking to himself in this situation. And that's how the translators of the King James Bible in 1611 saw it. In years after that, it would be further mistranslated as helpmate. Ezer Kenedgo is the Hebrew in this situation. The Hebrew words translated helpmeet. Ezer could remotely mean help, but it means help in the context of, of military aid, power, strength, and rescue. So yes, she was to give help, but in the same way that the SAS give help, or a Navy SEAL team gives help. Kind of like Chuck Norris, but in a more attractive package. <laughs> the second word, kinetgo, means facing or opposite. Therefore, the verse could be translated as following, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a power facing him. Or I will make a strength opposite him. All the ladies are adding me on Facebook right about now. <laughs> Each of these translations are infinitely more accurate than help meet. The idea is that if a man was walking with God, the woman would be his perfect advocate. If he wasn't, she would be his perfect enemy. That being said, it has to be that, the, that the, the word is translated into something more powerful because it is a description of the church. That's why. The church is perfectly suited, perfectly designed to stand facing Jesus, a powerful entity, powerful to carry out his ideas. God has designed a vehicle in us that is absolutely up to the task. That's where you say amen, okay? And Jesus started that work, and then he hands it on to us so that we can face him and carry out his ideas. And it's not that he needs us. He just chooses to involve us. There are times when God just invades and does something, where he sovereignly shows up and changes things. But there are many other parts of our lives that will show no fruitfulness until we co-labor with him, until we get involved in what he's doing, until there is a partnership with his declared word. 
Some of you might think that this translation of, of those words is heresy. If you do, email me at tspark at Centro Church. You'll get a reply. Now, all of this is well and good, and we have a, a powerful picture of what the church can be, but it all comes to a head in the book of Revelation, where we see the end product, where Jesus sits down with the bride who has made herself ready. That's what the book of Revelation says. The bride has made herself ready. She has ticked all the boxes and fulfilled the destiny that has been placed before her, and she has made herself ready, and she arrives to sit down with Jesus when the job's done. She's united with him in glory. A bride that has grown into maturity in full bridal partnership with Jesus. Are we there yet? Probably not. A long way from it. When you go on the internet and you see Christians taking pot shots at each other and pot shots at churches and pot shots at governments and pot shots at politicians, you think, is that bridal maturity? No, it's not. It's bridal immaturity. So there's an individual requirement for us to not participate in that kind of chaos. There's also an individual requirement as us on the part of the bride to give ourselves to grow in the identity and inheritance that God has for us. And that's what I want to talk about that today. It's never his intention for us to get saved and sit. The Holy Spirit is always provoking us to something that is further on. And so we come to this book, The Song of Solomon, which is an outstanding book. It was a book I vowed I would never, ever speak from. But in the last couple of months, I've listened to perhaps 30 teachings on it and read two books on it. And guys, if you're worried about the girly language in it, don't. The books I read were by two Xboxes. So that just gives it a blokey perspective, yeah? So it's an eight-chapter-long song. It's poetry. It's a revelation of God's emotions in relationship in relationship with us, the principles and the seasons of our life as we grow in our passion for Jesus. It's, it's not an accident. It's set there in the Old Testament to give us a picture. It gives us a picture of God in pursuit of us, in pursuit of our affections, of our emotions, to want to connect with us and live in intimate union on a daily basis. So guys, don't worry about it, okay? It's, it's a good thing. So to understand this book, first of all, you have to understand who the main protagonists are. There's King Solomon. He is the bridegroom. He represents Jesus. If you read his words in the Passion Translation, they are in red, just the same as the Lord Jesus is in, in the New Testament. If you read it in the Passion Translation, there there is the Shulamite. She is his girlfriend, his fiance, his betrothed, the one who he is pursuing. She represents us, the church, believers. That's what she represents. Throughout the book, she's called the Shulamite or the maiden until it gets towards the end, and then she is called the bride, same as it works in the book of Revelation. And then there is this nondescript bunch of women called the Daughters of Jerusalem, and they are a bit of a ragtag crew. They're never clearly identified, but they represent people who, in, in, they represent in our world, people who are saved but never really press 
for connection or press for intimacy with Jesus. That's who they are. And throughout this book, the Shulamite, the, the maiden, she makes four progressive steps in growth, and they're easily trackable. She makes, you, you actually see the bridegroom become more and more of a priority in her life. We're going to look at a string of verses, four in a row, and you'll see four declarations that she makes that you can chart her growth from one level to the next. The first one is found in the book of Song of Solomon 2, chapter 2 and verse 16. The Shulamite, the girl, she says, my beloved is mine and I am, I am his. He feeds his flock among the, yeah, that bit. And then she says in chapter 6, verse 3, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. See, it's changed. There's, a, there's growth. And then she says, I am my beloved's, chapter 7, verse 10, and his desire is towards me. She's understanding him. She's getting to know him. And then finally, in chapter 8, verse 6, she says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. She recognizes at this point that this is for keeps. This is forever. This is a complete yes to the bridegroom. First one, she says, my life with Jesus is all about me. The second one, she says, my life is with Jesus is all about me, but Jesus has a big part. Then she says, Jesus is first in my life, but I'm still a priority. And then finally, she says, it's all about Jesus, and I'm solely his. This love is as strong as death. The final one is a complete yes to Jesus. Rate your yes. We ask people when they give their lives to Jesus, we ask them to say yes to Jesus. And they say yes to Jesus. And that's, that's good. It's a little yes. And then over and over, as we grow, that yes needs to become more expansive, needs to cover more areas. It needs to become something that, that, that we come out of connection, out of knowing him. That, 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 uh, that stage that we get to where our yes is complete. See, these four stages line up perfectly with another four stages that are pictured in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, where he describes in chapter 47 of his book a river that flows from the temple and gets deeper and deeper. And it starts off where he says, he's measured us, he's measured us, and the water was ankle deep. Ankle deep, you still have control. You have control over everything. It's only ankle deep. It's not really even affecting you. But then he says, we're measured and it becomes knee deep. And so there's less control, but still a fair amount. And then it becomes waist deep. We're measured and it becomes waist deep. And there is still able, you're still able to put your feet on the ground. You're still able to have something, a safety net to fall back on. But there is more of Jesus. There's more more force in the water coming until finally the final stage is in over our heads where we can't touch the bottom there's no safety net again that's a complete yes we say a complete yes and whatever that may bring it's heavy isn't it wherever you are today in God he is measuring you for the next level 
He's saying he wants you to know where you are and he wants you to know how to get to the next level. Maybe you're not even at the first level today. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. Maybe, maybe that's something that you're wrestling with. Maybe it's something you're not wrestling with, but it's just an idea, a thought. But it's something to be considered that God wants you to bring you into a place to exist in the same space as him and fully participate in his purpose and identity. So let's take three things from the song and let's explore them a little bit as how we can get a, a strong connection, how we can walk daily in what God is doing, how we can bring ourselves to play our part in bringing the bride to full bridal maturity. Good idea? We're going to do that? You on board? Okay. Let's, uh, let's t- the first thing, the first thing we need to talk about is encountering the bridegroom. A desire, an encounter is, is an expression of passion, an injection of passion. The Shulamite woman expresses a true desire of her heart for intimacy with the bridegroom. First up, almost right from the start of the book, the first verse says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And all the guys are saying, there it is. There's the girly language. It's all about smooching. Don't get a picture of Jesus kissing you. That's not what it's about. In the Song of Solomon, you have to understand the language. You have to understand the background of the protagonists. Like Solomon grew up in the palace. The Shulamite grew up on a farm. It's like, it's like someone from the inner city who went to BBC and University of Queensland going out with a girl from Kalbar. That's, that's what it's like, okay? So you have to understand the language and the background. In the song, kiss equals encounter encounter because a kiss is an injection of passion and so is an encounter that's what it is an encounter as i know it brings it into a pl- brings us into a place where we can feel god's love for us it's him visiting himself upon us in passion it's important that we don't miss the first two words of that verse let him let him a lot of us don't allow ourselves to be loved by God. We feel that we're not worthy, that we feel that we, we've, you know, we've, we've done too many things that he can't love us. He's dealt with all that. All of those things are past. You are, for those things, you are unpunishable. All of the things that we put under the blood of Jesus are gone. Don't revisit them. Allow yourself to be loved. Let him we are the one who our bridegroom loves. We need to let ourselves be loved. Let him love you. Let him encounter you. He has something in his heart for you. People who have strongholds in their lives, who can never seem to get over things that, are, that hold them back, life-controlling problems, they can, they can work through them by process and discipline, and sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. But when you have an encounter with the bridegroom, there is this injection of passion that will push you, fast track you sometimes through those things, through addictions, through a troubled mind. An injection of passion can, it will let you break it free from strongholds in your life that have held you back for years. 
There's an expression that they use in mountainous countries. There's, there's, a, there's a, a particular area in mountains that they call the snake line. It's the height that snakes can go to, and they don't go anywhere past that. And, and you can live above the snake line. You can live in a place that is so high up, that is so, so vertically opposed to where you are now, that no snakes can touch you. You can live above the snake line, out of reach of sin, out of reach of strongholds, because your passion is so intense, you're living at such a height, at such a vertical height, that it can't touch you. We need to keep ourselves open to the encounters that Jesus wants to have with us. It, re- it requires a mindset. It requires us to extract ourselves from the hurly-burly. Busyness wars against our God awareness. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, I'll quote it for you, the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals, and the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day, standing back from your natural fussings and frettings coming in out of the wind, coming aside, getting in, that, in the presence, letting God encounter you. So that's the first thing, the encounter. The second thing talks about something we don't like to talk about. We need to engage our emotions with God. The verse in Song of Solomon is chapter 1 verse 10. It says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. God designed us to be emotional beings. The cheeks throughout the song speak of emotions because emotions register on your cheeks. You smile, you frown, your cheeks react. Your eyes might be a window to your soul, but your cheeks are a window to your heart. These cheeks here, okay? This one's right here. People looking at me strangely. When you look at somebody's cheeks, you can tell if there's anger or joy or sadness, can't you? Yeah, you can. Emotions are relayed through the cheeks. So, therefore, he talks about her emotions. He says, he says, they are lovely. Your emotions are lovely. He appreciates your emotions. God is the most emotional being in the universe, and he awakens our emotions, touching us with the emotions that he has in his heart for us. We're told to love God ourselves and love others with all our heart, soul, and mind, our mind and emotions. The reason God instructs us to love in this way is because that's the way he loves us. He doesn't give a part of himself. He gives all of himself, and that's what he wants us to do in return. Have a look at this from, in the Psalms from David. This is, this is an emotional guy responding to an emotional God. Psalm 84 verse 2 says, Deep within me are these lovesick longings, desires and daydreams of living in union with you. When I'm near you, my heart and my soul will sing and worship with my joyful songs of you, my true source and spring of life. Now, he's not talking about his girlfriend. He's talking about God. 
but he's talking about God on an emotional level. But emotions can be like kids. You can't put them in the boot of your car, but you can't let them drive either. Okay? The tension here is to be able to be expressive towards God while keeping your emotions in line with truth. The ability to hold on to truth, even when you don't feel it, is actually integrity. We have feelings because God wants us to encounter Him in our hearts. Knowing Him in our minds is not enough. It can be boring and predictable. If you know Him in your mind without ever experiencing Him, that's bordering on religion. There was a moment after Jesus rose from the dead where He was on the road to a place called Emmaus, and he was, he was walking with two of his followers, and they didn't recognize him. He had the dark glasses and the baseball cap on to sort of hide the, hide the glow. And, that, and they didn't recognize him, and they're telling him all about him. Anyway, they get to a place, and he, he does something, and they recognize him. And they say, did not our hearts burn within us when they encountered Jesus? They encountered him at a level of their emotions. See, we can, we can have an emotionless relationship with God, but we miss out on the burning heart thing. And I don't know about you, but I want that. I want that heart burning within me when I encounter him, yeah? Is that a good idea? See, a lot of people make involuntary vows about their emotions from past hurts and examples. And they say, I'm not, I'm not going to hang myself out to dry again over this thing. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to expose myself to the possibility of failure. That needs to be dealt with. Our cheeks are fine to be seen. It's okay for them to be seen. It's okay for us to use our emotions. And then finally, the third thing is our response to the bridegroom. We need to be people who respond, yeah? When God is moving, what's the point of sitting there and being an onlooker? When, when you have some issue and God is there to deal with it, what, what's the point of sitting back? I've, I've been in church services and I've heard a preacher preach on a particular thing and then, and then offer to pray for people. And what's happened is the people who I know are in that situation just don't respond. They just sit back. What, what is the point of that? We need to be people who open ourselves up who respond to God. I heard a story about Heidi Baker, and, and she was in a worship service. She'd flown from Mozambique to California to be in a worship service, and apparently the music and the singing and the song leading was terrible. And a guy was saying to her, oh, you know, how did, how did, you, how did you manage to worship while through that? And she said, look, I flew 10,000 miles to be in this, in this service. I can't rely on somebody else to govern my response to God. That is the sort of heart that has planted 47,000 churches in 25 years. That sort of heart, a heart that responds to God. You can't let anything else govern your response. How did you come today? Did you come with a heart that is willing to respond, to let God take you wherever he might want to, to work towards that complete yes to get there is that you today 
there is a, a really curious little scenario in the Old Testament where the Queen of Sheba meets Solomon and she says to him, God really must love Israel to make you king. In the same way, God really, really must love Ipswich to put us here. Yeah? Thank you for listening to this podcast.